people think, and we all learned in grade school, that, oh, the, the American Revolution started with the, the Boston Tea Party. Actually, it really started back in 1772 with the, uh, the White Pine Riot in New Hampshire, which was a literal riot in which they tarred and feathered two surveyors and ran them out of town in uh, one of the town, sawmill towns in New Hampshire. And so the, the White Pine became a real symbol of American economic independence. And then it became a symbol of um, political independence, I guess, or even cultural independence. So you see the beginnings of the start of a culture being built up in America centered around the white pine, that this is ours, this is American, we're Americans, you're not, leave us alone. Hey folks, what's happening? Welcome to Your Forest. My name is Matthew Kristoff, and on this podcast, we talk about the environment and the science of sustainability. Now, it's 2023. I'm doing things a bit differently. If uh, going into this year, you're wondering why things are going slow, it's because I'm only releasing one episode every month. So the third Wednesday of every month will come an episode uh, that's down sort of 12 episodes from 18 in previous years. I apologize, but it just allows me to do it properly. And uh, I'm hoping to create better episodes for you. So yeah. Now today's episode was really an eye opener for me. I never thought I'd do an episode on uh, one specific species. I mean, <laughs> it just, there's so many species. Why pick one? But uh, I got to say the guest today has convinced me that white pine is worth having a whole podcast episode about, without a doubt. And he wrote an entire book about it. John Pastor is an ecologist and professor of biology at the University of Minnesota in Duluth, where his teaching and research focus on the natural history and ecology of northern ecosystems. And uh, as such, spending a lot of time in the North Woods, he kind of fell in love with white pine. And he wrote, like I said, this entire book about it called White Pine, The Natural and Human History of a Foundational American Tree. So he takes you through this journey of this tree and the species itself, the ecology of it, uh, why it's such an important tree, ecologically speaking and biologically speaking, and then going into the human history of it as well, right? Talking about the foundation of America and colonialism and the use of uh, the white pine by indigenous people and beliefs therein, and also getting into the future. So white pine was a species that was kind of decimated after colonialism for for use in timbers and home building and homesteading and everything else. And as a result, they, a lot of them never really came back. So we have this this huge gap apparently in the North Woods where there used to be a lot of this white pine that was this foundational tree that stood higher than everything else and just kind of stood out and they're not really there anymore. So we, t so the end of it, we start talking about how do we get this back? And he's got some really cool ideas and, and cool research that he did into that topic. So it was such a great conversation. I can't wait for you to listen to it. Such a great book. Please go out and get it. I think it's, it's out there. It's available. And uh, I highly recommend it for anybody that's obsessed with learning more about ecology and the human history behind logging practices and 
colonialism and that sort of thing. It was just, it's, it's really, really fascinating. So yeah, uh, sponsors for 2023. There are only two this year. West Fraser is the number one. Without them, this would not be possible. So thank you, West Fraser, for your support. Couldn't do it without you. And secondly, Greenlink Forestry. Been with me since the beginning. Again, couldn't do it without them. Thanks, Greenlink. And that's it. Let's dive into this conversation all about white pine and the natural and human history of a foundational American tree. Here we go. Thanks again for, for joining me. I, I, I really, really enjoyed the book. So yeah, your, your book, White Pine, uh, The Natural and Human History of a Foundational American Tree. I wanted to know first off, what it, like, what is your connection and your fascination to white pine or pinus strobus? And like, how did this, how did this idea for this book come about? Well, I have a lot of connections. Um, my father was a carpenter and cabinet maker and white pine was his favorite wood to work with. And so we had in the, in the shop, just the smells of white pine and uh, on the job site and so forth. And lots of white pine sawdust all over the place. We had, uh, uh, he built our house mainly out of white pine, two by fours and paneling and, uh, most of the furniture in it was white pine. So I <clears throat> sort of grew up around white pine lumber. Mm -hmm. And then my research has always been on the, mostly has been on the North Woods, the boreal forest and the tundra, but largely the North Woods, just this biome just south of that mer the boreal forest that sort of merges into the boreal forest. And wherever I've worked, there's always been white pine around. It's been mm. part of every site I've worked in. And the odd thing is, I don't think I've ever published a paper with white pine in the title, but white pine is yeah. throughout uh, our, all of my papers. And, uh, and that's because it's, it, you just see it. It's everywhere in the Northwoods. It defines the Northwoods and the Northwoods is, this is the place I love the most. I've been to, China and worked a lot in Scandinavia too. And, uh, you know, the North slope of Alaska and Antarctica and so forth. And this is the place that to me is home. And when I think of mm -hmm. a forest, it's a, a big, big white pines towering over maples, uh, sugar maples mm -hmm. and red maples. And, and so this is, um, it's, it's just to me is the tree that feels like home in so many ways. Um, the book itself kind of came about because my previous book with uh, Island Press, What Should a Clever Moose Eat, was a series of essays about the natural history of different species in the North Woods, kind of a broad overview of the North Woods as a working ecosystem, looking at it from the angle of different species in it. And while writing that book, I thought, well, I need to have an essay in here or a chapter on white pine. But whenever I thought about doing it, it just seemed like that wasn't going to be enough uh, for white mm. pine, that eventually it just needed a whole book. So rather right. than just give it cursory <laughs> treatment, I just put it aside. And when that book was finished, uh, the What Should a Clever Moosey was finished, 
my editor, Rebecca Bright, at Island Press and I met at the um, Ecological Society of America meeting. And she said, okay, so what? what's your next book? So I gave her some ideas, and this was one. And then I said, you know, I'd like to write a book just about white pine and thinking of it if what should a clever moose eat is a series of essays of different species. This would be like one long extended essay about one of the most important species. I just love the tree. I, there are white pines behind this bookcase out there. Right. And old growth white pines. It's, I live where there are old growth white pines. I love seeing them every day. Each tree right. is different. Each tree is individual. It's just a wonderful tree. Absolutely. So you mentioned you mentioned one of the most important species. What do you mean by that? Why why is white pine one of the most important species? Is that just you, or do you think that is true for for other reasons as well? No, I. Well, it's partly me. Other people might have a different view, but uh, sure. other people have said that too. There's one of my favorite authors is a guy named Donald Colross Piatti. He wrote two books. His first book was The Natural History of Trees of Eastern North America. And then he wrote a, a companion to that called The Natural History of Western Trees. And basically each chapter is a chapter on the natural history, but also kind of human history of various species, tree species. And the first chapter in, in is on white pine. And in the I believe in the first page, he said, no other tree has had as much of an influence on American history as white pine. Um, so other people think this too. So there's two reasons why it's so important. One, ecologically, it's really the largest tree in the Northwoods by far, by far. Even today, you look out over the Northwoods landscape and much of it, of course, was cut over and stuff. But Things are coming back, but the white pines out there just tower over everything, everything. I mean, you can look at maples and red oaks that's mixed with, and they're big trees and they're tall. And But if you could stand back a little bit and see the horizon, the white pine is just like head and shoulders above anything else. It's, it's large biomass enables it to capture a lot of the, the sun's energy that flows into the food web. It allows it to control the cycling of nutrients through the food web by uptake of nutrients and then shedding the needles. And then that has a major influence on the soil. So it's what's called, uh, ecologists call a foundational uh, species. Foundational species are large, generally long-lived plants at the base of a food web that because of their relatively large size in that ecosystem, they control the food web and the movement of energy and nutrients through that food web. And other examples of foundational species would be like Douglas fir in the Pacific mm. Northwest, uh, redwoods, um, obviously massive trees as well, but Sohoro cactus in the Sonoran Desert, or even um, a big bluestem in mm. the prairies. It's not a big species, you know, in terms of size, but it's one of the larger, uh, the taller grasses out there. And even in marine ecosystems, kelp. In fact, it was Paul Dayton's, uh, one of Paul Dayton's, he's a marine biologist, articles on the kelp forest off the coast of California and also Antarctica 
that he coined the term foundational species for kelp because the okay. kelp, if you're diving, and I don't dive, but I've seen videos of people diving through a kelp forest. It's like you're, you're actually flying through a forest uh, right. on these big kelps. So all ecosystems have plants at the base of their food web. And any ecosystem is going to have a common, long-lived, relatively, for that ecosystem, large plant species. And that is the foundational species. So that's the ecological reason why it's important. The um, But there are cultural reasons as well. As I, uh, in preparation for this book, started thinking about white pine, or actually throughout my life thinking about white pine, I became aware that it's important culturally. Um, for example, the, the Paul Bunyan era in Eastern North America is Paul Bunyan was cutting white pine. Um, gotcha. So our ideas of Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox and uh, the heroic era of logging uh, is part of the culture that's built up around white pine. Wilderness. Thoreau um, made three trips through Maine looking for old growth white pine forest and the pine was basically gone. It was all spruce and fir and everything else at that point, but he couldn't find it. And out of that came a lot of his ideas about the importance of wilderness and the law, what the loss of wilderness means. The Native Americans, particularly the Iroquois and the Algonquins, um, well, not just Algonquins, the Anishinaabe, of which Algonquin is one of the tribes, they revered white pine. And it's it's part of many of their origin stories. There are five tribes, for example, in the Iroquois Nation, Federation of Nations, and there are five needles uh, bundled together in a fascicle on white pine. It's these five-needled pines, of which white pine is the type species. Um, the Iroquois thought that each one of those needles corresponded to a different one of their tribes. So they, they identified with it. And the Anishinaabe did the same way. <clears throat> and then a good bit of the origin of forestry and forest ecology, uh, by Gifford Pinchot and, and, uh, uh, George Perkins Marsh and people like that, uh, Volney Spalding, uh, Bernard Furneaux revolved around looking around at the landscape and saying, my God, the pines are almost gone. What are we going to do? And how can we restore it? And how can we better manage it rather than just simply mine it? And mm -hmm. like it's like the forest is a big warehouse of lumber and we just go in and buy lumber from it. And mm -hmm. so the origin of forestry and forest ecology in this country, much of it revolved around the issue of what to do about the remaining white pine and how do we go about restoring it both for wilderness, but also to have a sustainable timber industry in mm. the Northeast. So there are many avenues that come together um, that make white pine, not just an ecological foundation of forest, but a, a foundation of the cultures that live in this kind of forest. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. That makes sense. And I, I especially like the the separation you made between, uh, you know, logging and forestry in relation to that. Because you mentioned that, like, forestry in my mind, and it seems like in your mind as well, is the concept of 
removing things from the landscape, but you're also replacing them and making sure that there's a sustainable balance there. Whereas originally when, when colonists first settled, like you said, it was just, they were just chasing pine trees and cutting them down. And there was no real thought for, it was just, Hey, there's, they're everywhere. It's an, it's infinite yeah. where we're good. Just keep going. And, yeah. and, but yeah. unfortunately they, you know, they did manage to, you know, put a huge, huge dent in what was yeah. once there. So, I, I want to make um, one comment on what you said, making a distinction between logging and forestry. Um, sure. We're still doing logging, and but mm-hmm. I don't have any issues with logging. Um, mm. And I don't really have any issues. I have some regrets, but not issues, that sure. during the um, – the heroic era of logging, the Paul Bunyan era of logging, that all of it was cut down. So I make a distinction between what, how people saw white pine and in other forests too, but predominantly white pine then and the way we think about it forest now. And what people right. had to do then, um, starting in pre-colonial times, in colonial times in the, uh, uh, in New England, they needed timber. They needed the yeah. timber to build houses and barns and and bridges and so forth. And they weren't going to get the timber from Europe. In Europe, a lot of the stuff had been cut through already. And right. it's expensive to import it. They had to get it. And in order to build a, a nation, mainly down here, but I think also to some extent in Quebec and, and Ontario and New Brunswick – they had to harvest the big trees and the biggest tree was white pine that gave mm. uh clear lumber that could be cut into large sizes for beams, for barns, for houses, for paneling, for ships, for ships mass, uh, to have commerce with the, with the world. And they just looked at it and said, like you said, my God, it looks almost infinite like we're not going to run out of this we're we're cutting this down with by hand sauce and we're moving it with mm-hmm. oxen you know and yeah. there was odd that nobody looked back and said wait a second we're we're doing this a little too fast which has always been a little perplexing because they knew the prairie was out there and they knew it ended right. okay the voyagers were out in the prairie they knew where white pine and the forest ended. So it wasn't like right. this is going to go on all the way to the Pacific coast. And then <laughs> we'll just yeah. jump over to Japan and use what's there in China. <laughs> <clears throat> right. But when they, as they went further and further west from Maine into New York state, Pennsylvania, and then especially into Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, the pines just became more abundant, they became bigger, and they became easier to get to the rivers or to, to get out with the oxen. And so things just kept getting better and better and better as they went west. <laughs> right. And they're thinking, my God, we thought we had a great in Maine, but look at this stuff in Michigan now, and look at this stuff in Wisconsin and, and Minnesota. We are, yes, there's a border out there, but we're never going to run out of this stuff. And, uh, so that's, that's why people didn't give a, much heed to regenerating it or, 
Right. You know, they just kept doing it. And so, well, if it regenerates, it regenerates, whatever, but we're not going to run out of big trees. And that attitude persisted until about 1900. Hmm. And then all of a sudden people said, oh, my God, it's really ending. And uh, yeah. so it's uh, – and that's when forestry, the idea of forestry, which is managing the forest to regenerate it, to uh, have it sustainable, not just – pull things out of it, but to regenerate it. And, you know, you being a forester and, uh, you know, one of my degrees is in forestry. Most of what a forester thinks about is not cutting of the trees that are there, but the next generation and the next generation after that, maybe. And uh, most of timber prescriptions are to, how do we do this to take the wood out to read, to, to pay for the cost of doing it, um, mm. but also to regenerate it into some desired future condition. And right. that that yeah. idea started around in this country about 1900. So we had already been harvesting the white pine for 300 years at that point. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's wild that they're able to harvest at such a rate like the, you, you sent me that that radio uh piece that somebody did and they they gave an example and i want to know if it was your example or if it was one they gathered they said something about uh around 1900 the rate the rate of harvest at that point was something like like two million board feet a year which is and he gave the example of saying it was enough to build a nine foot boardwalk right. around the equator is that right. true but yes. Wow. Yes. <laughs> with hand yeah. saws. Yeah. yeah. With just, with with just cross-cut saws. saws and, and oxen. Yeah. It's and crazy. The, it, one of the neat uh, things that I learned in writing this book, I I think I had heard of it before, but it, be, it, it really came home to me in writing this book, was that the um, cutting of the pine uh, just kept going faster and faster and faster. And – the the last hurrah of white pine cutting was in northern Minnesota. There was a sawmill that Warehouser built. So before Warehouser went out to um, the Pacific Northwest and became the company it is today, Warehouser was cutting white pines in Wisconsin and Minnesota. And they built a sawmill in this town called Virginia, Minnesota. Not the state of Virginia, but Virginia, Minnesota. And that sawmill uh produced um a million board feet a day of lumber a Oof. million board feet a day for <laughs> 10 or 15 years it was it's a, it was a world's record it may still be a world's record for lumber production out of one sawmill and just uh, it's hard to fathom a million board feet a day every day yeah, that's insane. And that's ridiculous. So it 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 went out with this last hurrah of just <laughs> records. So the records weren't really set in Maine. They were set in, you know, when the white pine was almost gone. It was just uh just incredible. Wild. That's just it's just yeah. insane to think about that it was like, well, it's almost gone. Let's just uh what do you think about hammering down one last time? <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, may as well just let's just let's just clean house. Yeah, that's a it's yeah. a weird concept, and like it's 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 foreign to us today. But I suppose 
um, it, it's hard to look back and, 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 and judge the opinions of the time when you're of the time of the culture of the day. Right. So, right. um, so, uh, I, yeah, but I, they, they knew Weyerhaeuser knew that, okay, but we're going to go out to Pacific Northwest and there's going to be Douglas fir and the Douglas yeah. fir are even bigger. And, you know, so we'll just liquidate the pines and we'll do, let's do it as quickly as we can. And, uh, yeah. and then we'll just hopscotch over to Prairie and we'll start all over yeah. again with the Doug fir. <laughs> yeah. Literally cut and run. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy. So, so can you, can you also paint a picture then of the kind of the frequency of white, like obviously there was a lot, um, relative to what's there today. Like I, I want to try and paint a picture. Obviously we know like, Hey, lots was cut and didn't really yeah. come back naturally. Um, so how much is left? Well, originally, I have some notes here I took in the, from my book. The Forest Service, um, from the original surveyors, um, land surveyors notes of uh, laying out the township and range in, in this country, uh, the United States, they estimated that there was maybe 600 billion board feet of white pine originally in the okay. original primeval forest. And in uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, and, and Minnesota, uh, the estimate is maybe 268 billion board feet was cut. Then when you add the amount Ooh. in uh, uh, Pennsylvania, New York, and Maine, probably about 300 billion board feet uh, were cut uh, altogether, maybe even somewhat more than that. That doesn't mean that half of the original forest is left. Uh, much of the forest was it, that was what was cut and went through sawmills. There was a lot, mm-hmm. a lot of the forest was would have isolated white pines in them mixed with maples and hemlock and, and oaks. And a lot of the, those were cut and just used by the landowner to build the house or the barn or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then, particularly in this area in uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, um, fires came through and burned a lot of the uncut forest. And, but there are isolated stands throughout Min- northern Minnesota, even a little bit into Wisconsin, that are a few acres, you know, maybe 10 acres. Yeah. I actually, in part of our research, we found one that was about close to 200 acres in Voyagers National Park in northern Minnesota. And they were just left because the way that they were cut was the companies like Warehouser and general logging and so forth would set up these camps in different forests and the lumberjacks would come from their uh uh from their farms and spend the winter out in the woods cutting trees um and then go back home in the spring well you could go along and keep cutting and then stop and go back home in the spring and warehouser and general logging and the other companies would say, you know what? It's not worth it to come back next year to set up another camp to keep cutting through this, this particular stand. So we're just going to leave it. It's, it's not worth to come back even for a hundred acres. We're, mm. we're just going to keep moving on. <clears throat> and so when they got to Minnesota, a number of those little stands were left all over the place. And, uh, so the amount that's actually left of the original uh, primeval white pine 
I'd say it's certainly less than 5%. Wow. So like a real, yeah. Yeah, a real number on it, that's for sure. So you really... You really were hitting home the point of white pine as a symbol of, you know, American independence and um, the concept of, you know, society building and that kind of thing. Can you explain, like, obviously it was it was huge for the economy. It provided a lot of jobs. It, you know, it had a lot of money, a lot of timbers, a lot of all that kind of things. But can you give more of an example and really kind of try to hit home the point of, of how crucial it was to the foundation of, of well, North America, really? <clears throat> More revenue was generated by harvesting white pine than all the gold in California. Wow. And in fact, more than um, all the mine up to like, let's say 1900, uh, there was more revenue generated in this country by harvesting and, and milling and selling white pine than all the mining that had been done up to then and all the harvesting of wheat that had been done up to then. So this this is wow. the tree that made North America. Particularly, it's the tree that made the United States, with without a doubt. And this this started yeah. early in the uh, uh, before the American Revolution. The colonists uh, knew that these these trees were extremely valuable, and what they were used largely for is mass for the sailing ships. And these sailing ships were getting larger and larger and larger <clears throat> and they needed to hold up the mass needed to hold up over a ton of canvas to move the ship through the the waters and in order to hold up that much canvas and to be strong enough but supple enough to bend before the wind and spring back the white pine was a perfect tree for doing that and so the colonists started harvesting the white pine and then selling it to um, to France and Spain and so forth. And it became a big part of the uh, the economy of the colonies, particularly um, New England. And surprisingly, not so much to Great Britain. The Royal Navy was getting a lot of uh, pines for their mass from the East, a little bit from Scandinavian, but the eastern part of the Baltic, Estonia and Latvia. And this is what we often call Scots pine, but the pines like this in Scotland are kind of gnarly. They're not really good for mass. But if you go to uh, northern Sweden and particularly Estonia and Latvia and and, uh, uh, Lithuania, beautiful, beautiful. Scots pine, uh, Pinus sylvestris, and they were getting a lot of their mass from the harvesting of that. And in some ways, that kind of pine, those pines over there belong to what's called the yellow pines, which are more resinous. And so they're more supple. They're a little bit stronger than white pine. So the Royal Navy didn't want white pine at first. They said, well, we'll get it from, we'll get better trees from Estonia. And it's just down the the coast here, the Baltic, it's not across the Atlantic, you know, it's in our backyard. Right. It's easier to get to. But <laughs> yeah. they were harvesting yeah. at a rate that couldn't um, be replenished. And so eventually those big trees were getting fewer and fewer. And to give you an idea of the size of somebody's mass of a li- uh, uh, a ship at a line, one of the, the flagships of the Royal Navy, you know, might have 
several dozen guns on it and a huge ship. And they needed a main mast that was 40 inches in diameter. Now, that's the mast <laughs> after it's been cut and shaped. So that means you have to take off the bark and everything. So the tree had to be 45 inches in diameter or bigger. That's a huge tree by anybody's for any species. That's yeah. a huge tree. Mm-hmm. And then the rule of thumb in naval architecture was a yard of height for each inch of diameter. So these, the main mast had to be 120 feet tall. And then there are other masts, Biza mast and all these other kinds of things, masts on the ships. So it took a, a They needed these big trees, and they needed them whole because that's how they were strongest. Well, as the uh, the supply of uh, the uh, Pinus sylvestris in the Baltic states started to dry up, they started experimenting with sort of splicing together smaller and smaller trees, and these really didn't do the job all that well. But then there was a blockade. Uh, England was at war with France and Spain, and France and Spain blockaded the entrance to the Baltic Sea, and so they couldn't get them. So then they started turning to the colonies. Well, by this time, the colonists thought that, well, this is ours. You know, we're cutting these things. We're making money off of this. Who are you to come and take our white pines? And <laughs> so the the a number of laws were passed by Parliament – proclaiming that all the white pines greater than 24 inches diameter belong to the king, period. They didn't belong to you, colonists. They belong to me for my Navy. And right. uh, surveyors were sent out to mark each one of these trees with a what's called the broad arrow. It was three slashes in the shape of an arrow. And nobody was only – those trees were only supposed to go – to the Royal Navy. Well, this didn't sit right for the colonists because those were the big trees they wanted that they were making money off of. And so by uh, 1772, it actually resulted in a riot in New Hampshire. And um, that was a precursor to the Boston Tea Party. So people think, and we all learned in grade school, that, oh, the, the American Revolution started with the the Boston Tea Party, actually, it really started back in 1772 with the uh, the White Pine Riot in New Hampshire, which was a literal riot in which they tarred and feathered two surveyors and ran them out of town in uh, one of the town, sawmill towns in New Hampshire. And so the, the White wow. Pine became a real symbol of American economic independence. And then it became a symbol of um political independence, I guess, or even cultural independence. So you see the beginnings of the start of a culture being built up in America centered around the white pine, that this is ours, this is American, we're Americans, you're not, leave us alone. If you want to buy our <laughs> white pine, that's fine. The king can buy it, but he can't take it. Right. And uh, <clears throat> so the... The, when the American Revolution started, the, uh, the Continental Congress forbid the export of white pine to, um, England, to Great Britain. And so the, the British were starting to run out of white pine for their masts. They had to replace these masts every three or five years. And they were starting literally to run out. And, uh, 
they uh, the masks were weaker. The British, the American ships, and particularly the French ships from like Lafayette that were coming over to help us, they were coming over here basically powered by mass of American white pine that the colonists uh, oh. sold them. And the uh, the last battle of the American Revolution at Yorktown in uh, Virginia, the British Navy was coming to uh, to blockade uh, so Washington couldn't escape by sea to blockade the port of Yorktown. And they didn't make it because their masts were so weakened. They ran into a big storm and the masts all broke. And the French <laughs> with Lafayette went around the storm with the American, strong American white pine mass and made it to Yorktown in time. And that was the end of the American Revolution. Um, it's really wild? fascinating the role that white pine played in the uh, – the economic independence of the colonists, but even the, but the growth of a cultural independence, the the flag that uh, flew over Bunker Hill had a white pine on it. That was the revolutionary flag of New England. I said, without white pine, you wouldn't have the United States the way it no. is. No, it's, it's, not at all. You yeah. there wouldn't have been the impetus for the revolution. The white the 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 kings taking ownership of all the white pine was the first impetus for the colonists starting to think, mm, maybe we don't want to be part of Great Britain. Yeah. Who the hell is this guy? Yeah. <laughs> who's way who's this guy, George the III, ocean? you know? What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I heard he's four feet tall. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I wanted to uh, – I wanted to – we get further into this concept and that I think like, obviously like you painted a great picture and it's, it's, it's undeniable that it's, it's a huge part of American history and the creation of the United States. Right. And you also, you also talked a lot in the, in the book about um, the relationship between white pine and the indigenous people of, of North America and of the States. Um, and obviously like, you know, with colonization came, came the genocide of, of the indigenous right. people. Right. And, you talked you, and you talked a lot about that, and I appreciated the you know the the full context of like yeah, all this amazing stuff happened for America. However, an entire culture was basically wiped out right. because of colonization, and white pine was was a big driver in that in that colonization. Right? When we review history like this, and we see so much you know incredible stuff, like independence and all of this you know patriotic kind of ideas. And realities, but we also see a massive amount of shame in the history right. as well, right? Right. How do you personally? How do you personally feel about those two realities coexisting, and how do you go about you know making sense of it in your own mind? Well, first, I just accept it, you know, and right. I, I think if we're going to try to understand it, in order not mm -hmm. to repeat it. We have to put ourselves in the mindset of people back then and what they knew and what they didn't know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the white European settlers looked upon the Indians as subhuman. They, they did. Mm -hmm. Now, individual mm -hmm. Indians, the ones that helped guide the troops through the wilderness and stuff like that, sure, they had a lot of respect for them. <clears throat> but they, they weren't going to make treaties with 
the Indians. I mean, they did, but the treaties meant nothing. But it, so a treaty with a, with for example, with the Iroquois or with the Anishinaabeg, the, the Algonquin, was looked upon in a different way than a treaty with France, you know, with right. your own people. And the treaty mm-hmm. was just there to gain access to um, uh, to resources. The, um, the Europeans looked upon natural resources as a commodity that they needed mm-hmm. to build civilization. That's the way right. they looked on it. And in fact, that's what they did. Western civilizations built on these commodities mm-hmm. that was used for literally building. The uh, Native Americans or uh, First Nations, uh, as you say in Canada, um, looked upon nature um, as a, a large system of which they were a part. And I didn't. You know, I, I'm always careful. I work with Native Americans here on various projects. Um, I'm always careful not to speak for them. I'm not of an course. Indian and I'm not going right. to be a white Indian. They <laughs> can speak. They're intelligent. They, they're articulate. They can and should speak for themselves. Um, so I'm not, mm. I'm never sure that I do them quite the justice that, um, they would do uh, if they were going to write a book like this. Um, mm. but they looked at white pine as anybody does. It's any, any forest where there's a big tree, you walk into that forest and you're in awe. And what is the first thing that anybody does when they see a big tree? Anybody. Whether it's a logger, a forester, uh, a Sierra Club member, whatever, it doesn't matter. You walk up to that tree and you look up and you put your hand on the tree. You want to touch it. And that's just a human uh, trait. But the Native Americans and First Nations built a culture around that feeling that this wasn't just a commodity, that in fact, they couldn't. They didn't have the tools to cut it down. I mean, they, what do you mean, cut down this tree? How are you going to do that? Right. They, then, what are you going to do when it's lying on the ground? It's more valuable standing up because it's habitat for bears, it's habitat for eagles, it's the red squirrels, everything. It's they had an understanding and a sort of a spirituality that is not exactly like a the science of ecology or the eco, the current scientific understanding of what a foundational tree is, but it was sort of a spiritual version of that. And so there's this clash between the cultures and that clash is what basically propelled our history uh, in the Eastern part of North America, both in Canada and the, the United States up until the, the 1900s. And it's, Shameful that there were people like, um, you know, General Sherman that said the only good Indian is a dead Indian. It's not my oh, view. I think yeah. it it would be a horrible view to hold today, but that's what Sherman said. That was the uh, the the idea back then. And so there, I don't think we even today still fully understand it. But if you want to get a very good understanding of it, I would look up Pekka Heimelainen's books on uh, 
how these two civilizations clashed with each other. They're very, very, um, very interesting. Absolutely. But as, as far as white pine goes, you know, there's a lot in native cultures that they don't want to share with white guys like me or like you. Mm-hmm. Even For though good I, reason, I, obviously, right? <laughs> yeah, well, we share the stuff with you guys, and maybe not you individually, but your people kick us in the head. And yeah. there, there's a view of white pine that the native peoples have that they're not going to share with us. I I don't know if that's that's the feeling I get, and so I don't push them on this. Right. I don't go up to them and say. You know, I'm writing a book about white pine. Tell me about white. That's not going to work. And um, mm-hmm. so there, there's something there about white pine that is part of their culture that they're they're keeping within themselves. I I think that's just sort of the impression I get. Right. I may be wrong. Makes sense. No, no, it makes sense. I mean, like you said, right? There's a there's a history there of, of mistrust and, and good reasons for it. So why, why would they share those things? Right. And, and yeah, right. we have some similar things here as well. Was there's, why would they share something with us? There's yeah. nothing for them to gain. There's not, it's, it's just, it's sacred. And so what, what I wrote in the, what I was able to write in there about, um, Native American First Nation views of white pine is what I could find in the literature that's already right. out there. I think I think it'd be incredible to know more, right? Because I think as as our society moves forward and becomes more prosperous and becomes more able to reflect and understand the world around us, you know, we've taken more time away from economy building and more time towards ecology building and scientific knowledge and understanding our surroundings. Um, I feel like Western society is moving closer to the concept of kind of the indigenous ways of knowing of, you know, hey, we need to live in balance with these things and not just take advantage of them because right. we have thumbs and, you know, are able to move about. So it's, I, I feel like our society is coming closer to that space than it is. Um, I mean, obviously there's still the, you know, the big driver of economy, but um, it, it's interesting to note the two huge differences back the time of colonization and how as time's gone on, I feel like at least the public is moving closer to that concept, right? Yeah. I, I think we are moving closer. And I think it's it's happening quite rapidly. Uh, right. uh, the foresters and ecologists are, and land managers are working um, more and more closely with Native uh, peoples. Um, it's moving in fits and starts and it's not without its problems and so forth, but we are moving in that direction and that that's really good. The one thing I would caution, um, people about white, white people is that these are, their stories are their stories. They own them. They can share them with us or they cannot share them with us. We cannot demand that they share them with us so we can be better. When people do that, it comes across as like, well, we took your white pine, we took your wild rice, we took your fish and everything else. Now we're going to take your stories too, okay? Yeah. <laughs> now, can you, can you teach us now that, you know, we're, yeah. we're willing to now learn that we now. Screwed teach everything us, up. Can you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it's asking a lot. Yeah. So it takes a lot of restraint. Um, 
to just let them let them be. When we've gone out onto reservations, I have another project, a long project, uh, dealing with the, the ecology of wild rice. And so we, and it's in uh, collaboration with the uh, tribal wild rice biologists. And we'd go onto the reservations near here and uh, to the lakes where wild rice grows to get through sampling and so forth. And I've told my students, when we get out to these lakes first place, um, you will be some of the few white people to have been on these lakes. So respect that. You're, no, you're, nobody's going to find these lakes by themselves. Okay. Second place, there will often be a couple of um, elders sitting on the shore. And it'll look to you like they're just having a chat and smoking a cigarette or something like that, smoking a pipe, whatever. Um, you have to be quiet. And we just stop and let them do whatever they do. And uh, I will go up to them and introduce myself after an appropriate amount of silence when I realize, when I know that they realize that we're there. And I will ask their permission. Well, students say, well, we already have permission of tribal biologists. I say, yeah, we do. But this is their lake. And when we're in the lake sampling or whatever, don't joke around. Don't horse around. This is like being in a church. I know that sounds might sound a little goofy, but it's true. And that's the kind of respect we have to show the people. And uh, I think that's um, – it's a different way of behaving than we're often used to. Like, okay, we got to go in here and get the job done, okay, right? We're using science. Yeah. We're, we're here to save the world. <laughs> But, um, you know, yeah. native peoples will look at us and save, save the world from what? From you? <laughs> you know, from yourself? that's what yeah. the world needs to be saved from. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's always difficult for, for us to step outside of our own culture and to, to, to frame the world in, in a different setting, right? Like it's, it's hard to, yeah. it's hard. It's probably one of the hardest things to do. Step out of your own culture and see from someone else's perspective, um, not just someone else's shoes, but truly, truly try to, you know, tie into how they view the world and how different it is from your own perspective, your own views, right? And it's right. yeah, it's one of the most important things, though I think. And I think that's that's where it starts, right? Is showing respect and just recognizing that it's not just Western ways of doing things that are yeah right. that are the only option. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's no, I think it was important to, to discuss that, and I appreciated appreciated you bringing it up so frequently in the book and talking about it and, and just bringing it to the forefront and just making sure that that people are aware of the the complete history of of this this land really right at least from the standpoint of 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 colonists so i i feel a bit like uh like i would be remiss without if we don't talk about uh blister rust and that type of thing in relation to to, to white pine and we're kind of jumping into a different topic almost here but we're going to get back to to these type of conversations again too soon um but the history of the history of white pine i find it's it's I was going through your book. I found it almost frustrating at times, right? You have this, this iconic foundation species that is, you know, it's big, it's beautiful. It's, it's covering a lot of the land. It's providing a lot of, uh, a lot of support to, you know, the ecological foundation of the landscape. Um, and then it was kind of just 
taken advantage of when colonists arrived and then we kind of realized our mistake and tried to fix what we did, try to re, you know, try to regrow white pines. And mm -hmm. as a result, we screwed up again and accidentally created a situation where a dangerous pathogen could make it even more difficult to bring right. back this foundational species. So, um, what, what do you suppose we're supposed to learn from this? Something like this, where we've got this this whole string of events of like, okay, th this is cool, we screwed it up, let's fix it. Oh, damn, we screwed it up and made it worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, be humble, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> Don't think you could fix it easily necessarily. Right. Uh, should I explain about blister rust for people who please don't... please do okay so absolutely yeah in the late 1800s around 1900 um the foresters get from pincho and this group of group of boys you know they there weren't any women involved then um they realized that they would have to replant a lot um but there was there weren't any nurseries set up in this country anywhere yet. So where are they going to get the seedlings from to do it? <clears throat> and the big pines, many of them had been cut down, but then the fires came through in a logging slash and burned up a lot of the any young trees that weren't cut by the loggers. The loggers were only going to cut the big trees. They weren't going to cut the little trees. And it killed maybe a lot of the big trees that were left. So there was no seed source. There was very little seedling source. Where are they going to get the seedlings from? Well, they got them from Europe. Well, what's white pine doing in Europe? Well, back at the time of the colonists, there were people who took seeds and seedlings back to England to start to grow white pine, um, mainly because they saw, what a great tree. Wouldn't this be nice to have big trees like this on our estates? But also, um, well, the colonists are going to give us a hard time about you know, giving us their big white pines, we'll grow them here for our ship mass and stuff. And so it was also to supply timber, not just in Great Britain, but also in uh, in Europe, in Germany in particular. Well, these uh, seedlings in these nurseries in Europe, uh, that's where the American er, early American foresters around the 1900 went to get seedlings to replant and the seedlings came over here in boxes, and uh, as people opened these boxes, they noticed that some of the seedlings had these yellow, ugly growths on them, like little blisters. All over. And they said, what is this? So they called up a pathologist who worked for the uh, Department of Agriculture, U.S. Department of Agriculture, and he came and looked at them. And uh, determined that this was a disease, and he kept opening up boxes and boxes and boxes of seedlings. And in each one of them, he saw that there was always at least a few seedlings that had these blisters. Now, of course, all the seedlings were infected with this because the spores come out and everything. And this is the blister rust. And so they he started studying it, and he was able to trace most of this. Pardon? So what year was this? This was in the early 1900s, about 1903, okay, okay. something like that. Okay. And uh, he traced many of these to one or two nurseries in Germany. And so we were going to these nurseries, which were the big nurseries in Germany. 
and getting the white pine seedlings and bringing them back here, but we also brought back this blister rust. Now, any kind of disease organism, particularly diseases on plants, if it kills a plant, that's not going to do very much for the organism. It's got to find another plant to live on to alternate, so an alternate host. And the alternate host for the blister rust are plants in the genus Ribes. These are the gooseberries and currants, which are uh, big in Europe. Uh, people grew them to eat. and But there's uh, a few dozen species of this in North America that the blisterus can jump to, survive on that for a summer, and then jump back to white pine. And so we introduce, we're with all good intentions of restoring white pine, we also introduce this disease, uh, blisterus. And so this resulted in two things. Number one, um, started with an army of uh, young men going out in the woods and just trying to hack away at the at the gooseberries and currants, wild gooseberries and currants that were out there. And number two, it resulted in what became known as the United States Plant Quarantine Act. And this was the first act that started to regulate the importing of exotic species, particularly plants. And this is, this is the act that it was passed in 1905, I think, that all subsequent work, and now, of course, exotic species coming into the country on ships and so forth, it's a big conservation problem. It's a big issue with the uh, management agencies in the United States and Canada. Uh, but it all goes back to this act of the, uh, of Congress that pre, um, the first, uh, quarantine was to prohibit the importing of any five-needled pine. The two-needled pines, the red pines and jack pines and everything else, the blister rust doesn't attack them. But the five-needled pines, the eastern white pine, the western white pine, and a bunch of other white pines out west, they will be attacked by the blister rust. So the first thing was to prohibit the importing of any seedlings of any five-needled pine because with the assumption is that you will be bringing in blister rust with them. And later right. on, there was also uh, a quarantine of getting rid of uh, uh, any goose species of gooseberry or currant around white pines, and you couldn't plant goose gooseberries and currants near remaining stands of white pine. So this actually are all the – the fascination we have now, and not fascination, but concern we have now with um, exotic species started with the blister rust, and which was the motivation for the Plant Quarantine Act. That's oh, the, okay. the legal start of dealing with exotic species. Right. Okay. As, as we go through the book, it seems like white pine is responsible for so many firsts. Yeah. Right. Like you, you mentioned, it's it's it was responsible for the first kind of research into, um, well, like you said, this this type of stuff, you know, the invasive species and that kind of thing. The first research on forest succession and how does how do right. forests grow back? Right. Right. Uh, you talked about it being the first in um, or one of the first in in recognizing in the research of mycorrhizal networks, which is right, which is something that we're talking about a lot today. Right. Right. Um, and the importance of of the symbiotic relationship between, you know, mushrooms and fungus and, and trees and that right. type of thing. And it just seems like white pine was 
was is responsible for so much of the concepts and ideas and 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 you know ways we think about the forest and ways we research the forest that it's just it's it's hard for me to to re, to fathom that this is all because of white pine one tree that that motivated all right. of this and it's it's right. incredible right and wilderness the idea of wilderness the going back to Thoreau was yeah. because he went through Maine looking for white pine. So where, yeah. where's the white pine? I'm supposed to see, yeah. be seeing white pine. There's not, it's a nice forest. I like it, but there's no white pine here. Um, so wilderness, forestry, uh, forest succession, going back to Thoreau, studying it. Yeah. Uh, mycorrhizae, which uh, is the big buzz now, and rightly so. Do you want to explain that concept really quick? Just just quickly, just a quick minute or two about about what what mycorrhizal networks are, their importance in the forest. So a mycorrhizae is a, a symbiotic association between a plant, um, usually a tree, but grasses have these things too, with various fungi, and the fungi put out their own kind of roots called uh, mycelia. And these are very thin white roots that go through the uh, uh, the forest floor. And what they do is they extend the rooting system of the tree. And it's symbiotic because the tree provides the, the fungus with carbon, uh, carbohydrates from photosynthesis. And the fungus, through uptake from the roots, provides the tree, or through the mycelia, provides the tree with nutrients and water. And so forth. So if you're walking through the woods and you see mushrooms blooming, uh, most of those, those mushrooms are the fruiting bodies of mycorrhizae. And you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg of the, the actual right. organism could cover a whole acre or more, uh, underground. And the recent research by Suzanne Samard and, and her colleagues have shown that the mycorrhizae actually connect trees. And not just trees of the same species, but also trees of different species. And so it's opened up a whole new way of thinking about how a forest is organized. Uh, what we see above ground is just a tiny part of what what's going on below ground that we don't see um, is far more complex, but in some ways maybe even far more um, necessary for the health of the forest. No, absolutely. Yeah, it started to break down the concepts of competition versus coexistence, and right. and on all these kind of things. And it's absolutely it's 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 been it's been interesting to to follow that research and that kind of thing. Yeah, very very cool, very very cool. Almost uh, it, it brings up from when I first learned about it. It brings up the idea. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Avatar, um, no. where they they they're, they're on this planet. And the forest, they, it turns out that the forest is all the trees and all the plants are interconnected through this synapse network, right? Like as if the oh. whole planet is one brain and it's all oh. talking and communicating and thinking and, and uh, you know, to one another and they're, they're trading resources and helping each other out. And it's, it almost brought up that sci-fi concept, yeah. right? And it's, it's, it's interesting. I like it's it's taking it to another level. Yeah, 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 it's an older movie. They're coming out with a second one soon, but yeah, that's that's where my brain always goes when we talk about uh, mycorrhizae and mycorrhizae networks. Yeah, it's it's very very cool. But uh, research on mycorrhizae in North America goes back to the 1930s. In right. the uh, it's not a new idea, right? Yeah, right. Uh, forester, forest ecologists, and forest biologists 
uh, Mitchell and Chandler and so forth at the Black Rock Experimental Forest and also at the Harvard Forest. Uh, in Black Rock is in New York and the Hudson River Valley and Harvard Forest is in Massachusetts. Um, doing research on mycorrhizae and one of their main tree species that they were using was white pine because they wanted to plant the white pine and the white pine. If you cut over land and then it burns and the topsoil burns, all of those mycorrhizal fungi are killed. And so you could plant a seedling in there and there's no mycorrhizae. And so the seedlings were dying. And so this group of scientists started, um, the German forest ecologists and foresters started to uh, do some research on mycorrhizae. And so then the Americans started to do it. And white pine was one of their motivating factors for starting to understand the mycorrhizal pine symbiosis and what it did. And that was some of the first research that showed that were it not for mycorrhizae, the tree couldn't get the nitrogen and phosphorus it needed out of the soil. That goes back to the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And uh, so white pine, the, the reestablishing of white pine is the motivation for the start of mycorrhizal research. Yeah, like it's 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 truly incredible all that white pine is responsible for. And, and going into read, starting to read this book, I did not expect any of this. And so I was blown away. Um, obviously, my, my reality is the boreal forest. And so I don't know a lot about white pine and I haven't looked much into the history. And so I was really, it really opened up my eyes. Like, and, and especially with the, the discussion around mycorrhizal networks and, and that, that relationship to trees and the importance of having that symbiotic relationship between fungi and trees to, so that they can both, you know, survive and thrive in, in most environments. And I, I thought that that was more of a newer idea, but to hear that it, it goes back over a hundred years, it's, it really opens up your eyes a little bit and goes, Oh, okay. So this is something that we've been aware of. It's not exactly a, a novel concept that, that, that just came about. And. Well, I, I think to be fair, people like Dave Perry and Suzanne Samard and so forth that really, uh, enriched our ideas of it and have taken it very, very far. But the, the line of research goes back, um, in this country back to 1920s, 1930s. And yeah, 100 years ago. Now here mm-hmm. we are at 2022 and, you know, 90 to 100 yeah. years ago. Um, but it yeah. was neglected for a while, long time. Uh, right. The whole idea of mycorrhizae. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's there's another question I wanted to ask you regarding white pine, and it's specifically around fire history, because um, we have this concept that I've discussed before um, that I've interviewed people about before, and the, the, it's the concept of fire return intervals and the fact that we know through oral history, through indigenous people, and as well as some of the scientific research, a little bit that in the past, pre-colonization, pre-contact. Uh, fire was much more abundant. It was more regular. It came through at lower intensities and more frequently, you know, burning out brush and burning out other things. And versus today where we just have these large, hot, high intensity fires that kind of just destroy anything that's on the landscape. and doesn't really leave much for refugia. Um, and you, you talked a bit about how white pine contributed to this concept. And specifically, I, I feel like there wasn't a lot of quantitative evidence for this idea. It was more just um, been discussed orally through uh, you know, knowledge received from indigenous people and 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 that kind of thing. And um, it seems like Bud Heiselman 
brought in the first kind of quantitative evidence to prove that this is what was going on. And I, I wanted you to, to detail that, that evidence and, 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 and how that changed the, the way the science, you know, views fire regime. Yeah. Well, the natural fire regime, we've gone to one extreme where there's just hot fires, but there were some hot crown, large crown fires naturally too, as well as, um, more frequent ground fires. And discovering that was the work of uh, Bud Heinzelman, who was an ecologist um, with the U.S. Forest Service here in Minnesota. In fact, he grew up in Duluth, where I'm sitting now. And I knew Bud. Oh, okay. Every, it's a small community oh. of people in Minnesota. We all know yeah. each other. He died a number of years ago. But... Um, I knew Bud and, and really admired him. His way of thinking about a forest really influenced me a lot. <clears throat> so what happened was that he was working for the Forest Service out of the St. Paul office, the uh, what at that time was called the Lake States Experiment Station. And the Wilderness Act was passed in the United States to set up various wilderness areas and preserve them. And the Boundary Waters Canoe Area on the border between Minnesota and Canada was specifically mentioned in the Wilderness Act, but kind of exempted from certain things because logging had been done in parts of it and the motorboats on lakes and so forth. And for the time being, it was exempted from some, even though the idea was eventually it would be incorporated into the wilderness. And what that did was it prompted a committee to recommend what to do about it. And that committee said their main conclusion was that in the boundary waters, the management of it should be to preserve and restore the long-lived conifers. And specifically uh, said white pine, red pine, and white spruce. And so Bud Heinzelman and a few other forest ecologists were given the task of figuring it out what to do. And one of the things they knew that fires were a big part of it. And so Bud Heinzman took that on as his task. And what he would do is he would go into the boundary waters and we're talking about a million acres of land that is mostly lake. It's easier to get around in the boundary waters in Quetico Superior by canoe than by hiking. The, the land is just there wow. to keep the lakes apart from each other. And he would go <laughs> travel uh, by canoe through the entire area. And he would find large old trees and, you know, beach his canoe on the shore and go into the, into the forest and find a large old tree and take a core with an increment bore through the tree and in some cases, even cut a small wedge near the stump of the tree. And from this, he could figure out the fire history by looking at charred rings on the wedge and in the uh, uh, in the core. And, and so he would then correlate the fire history of that stand. He'd get in his canoe and go back out on the lake and look at the canopy and say, oh, if it's got a canopy that looks like this. That means it's this old. And as white pine gets older and older, the canopy becomes rougher and rougher. Branches fall off. The wind comes along, ice on trees. It just becomes more and more irregular. So he could calibrate his eye looking at the canopy from the canoe to 
what the the rings were telling him. And then he would just go along mm-hmm. and map from the shoreline where he thought different stands were of different ages. And then in the evening and in the winter would get out air photos and really map it completely onto the USGS paper topo maps with this field notes. And you could see all these maps. These maps are in the map library of the University of Minnesota. And in fact, one of my son's uh, best friends is the map librarian. And he, when he told me oh. he had Bud Heinzelman's <laughs> maps, I said, you, you do? And so, yeah, he got out a bunch for me and I went down there and looked at him. I, I tell you, it's like going to Mecca if you're a, you know, yeah. <laughs> Muslim or something for me to go and yeah. see Bud's maps. And from that, awesome. he figured out a number of things. Number one, he learned that different kinds of forests, uh, would require different kinds of fire regimes. Um, in order to maintain, for example, jack pine and aspen, you need a complete burn of everything once every 60 or 70 years, and they would come back to jack pine or aspen. If there was no burns for hundreds of years, eventually things would succeed to maples and other hardwoods that are much less tolerant of fires. And white pine was kind of right in the middle there. Where what you what you needed to maintain white pine were ground fires that came through every thirty, forty years, maybe twenty years or so forth, and would kill a lot of the younger pines, but would kill especially the young maples and so forth in the understory that were competing and starting to shade out the white pines. So this would remove some of the understory competition. The large white pines were not killed by these ground fires for the most part because they have very thick corky bark that's resistant to fire. But every now and again, what you needed to do was open up that canopy to let the light in, to let the little trees come up. And so that's where the big crown fires comes in. Now, not every big tree burns in a crown fire. There are little hollows and stuff that are protected and so forth. So crown fires that came through every... 100 to 150 years would really open up the forest. There'd be a few big trees left that could be seed trees for the next generation. And and so the next generation would start. So a combination of these ground fire, frequent ground fires and large crown fires, less frequent, but much larger crown fires is where you needed to maintain white pine forests. And so that started a real shift in people's thinking from fire being the enemy of the forest. And, you know, it still is that people are careless about their campfires and so forth. We don't want that. But on the other hand, that fire properly done is what sustains certain kinds of forests. And white pine is one of them. Of uh, and that, that was all Bud mm-hmm. Heinzman's work. It was a real privilege to, uh, to know and and I think be a friend of Bud's. Uh, I think we consider each other friends and colleagues and to actually go out in the woods with him. It's just a real treat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's so, it's so great to, to, to bring some, some quantitative evidence for, for, you know, right. Western science to go off of, to start right. to apply some of these concepts in a real way where we can actually start to manage the land differently instead of right. just going with the old, the old way. Right. So that's, it was, it, it must've been a huge deal to get that evidence and, and, and publish it and have it recognized. Yeah. Well, it was controversial, you know, but 
you know, yeah. he he got a lot of crap for that. And also, really? um, he quit the Forest Service in order to lobby for maintaining the wilderness. He felt he couldn't wow. be in the Forest Service and lobby Congress at the same time. So he he retired. And, uh, seems and, uh, seems a bit of a conflict. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of a conflict. Yeah, and uh, yeah. <laughs> so now it's uh, now, of course, we can't have fires, crown fires that go, you know, uh, in the tens or even hundreds of square miles, which was the size of fires that Bud determined they were. Um, so we have to replace that with uh, management, with cutting trees in a way that sort of mimic a fire, although not really. You know, if you think of what a fire does, a fire right. burns up the little stuff and leaves a lot of the big stuff behind, charred, but still behind. A forester goes in and takes away the big stuff because that's where the lumber is and leaves the, the little stuff behind. <laughs> so there's to say, well, yeah. we're replacing fire with um, silviculture. There's, there's an inherent conflict there. You can't quite do it. Mm. But on the other hand, you can mimic certain things about fire, like opening up the canopy and, and so forth at various scales that kind of start to mimic what a fire does. Yeah, I, I like to think about it as more um, we're mitigating the risk with harvesting, right? Not really right. emulating fires, but we're mitigating the risk that a large fire might have. Um, and so that allows us to to do to be more creative with the management as well. Yeah. Um, so you don't have to worry about burning down a community and that kind of thing. But yeah, the whole right. idea was to emulate fires and um, that's under fire right now. You know, pun intended. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that yeah. concept, but but it, but yeah, like you said, it's it, it is kind of the, the opposites, but it's the you're right. It's we're we're trying to do something different, trying to do something more balanced, trying to dive into this uh, ecological forestry that you were talking about before. Okay, so uh, one of the last concepts I want to discuss with you, and it's it's kind of where I felt. Uh, the whole book was going, right? You're, you're kind of leading up to this concept of ecological forestry and the concept of, of going through and applying the values that the forest holds in an equal way, almost as co-values. So all the values, including, you know, watershed, uh, biodiversity, species at risk, uh, foraging, all, all these values, um, placing them on the same scale instead of putting economy and timber at the top of it, you're placing them all equally. And then the concept of weighting all of these things in a way that allows you to decide what the best action on the landscape is for all values. Um, it's, it's a fascinating concept that I think I've discussed a number of times. And um, so I, I want to get your introduction to this. I want to I hear from you um, how you're introduced to this subject and, and, and from the, the people that you, you, you showcase in the book that are, that are doing this kind of work. Well, um, the beginnings has actually started, I think, about 30 years ago when I was in graduate school. The, um, it was the, uh, the spotted owl controversy about <clears throat> saving ah, yes. the spotted owl. And it wasn't just the spotted owl. Very quickly, Jerry Franklin and, uh, Mark Harmon and, and Fred Swanson, people like that realized that, um, the, the owl was just one part of a healthy functioning Douglas fir forest. And so you could save the nest trees for the owl, but that wasn't going to do it. And you had to save the uh, the voles that the owl fed on. And then in order to save the voles, you had to provide habitat for the voles, the 
large down trees that the voles use for shelter. And then people discovered that, oh, the voles are actually the ones that are dispersing spores of the mycorrhizal fungi. Oh, and so the voles are yeah. benefiting the trees. <laughs> oh, so, you know, it isn't just a plantation. It's a functioning yes. ecosystem that all, like Aldo Leopold said, save all the parts. And so mm. out of that grew by the work of Jerry Franklin and Mark Harmon and stuff in the Pacific Northwest, the idea of ecological forestry. And that now that's being applied to forest everywhere. <clears throat> and one of the leaders of this, well, there's two leaders of this, and they're in, in northern Minnesota. One is Brian Pollack, who's the chief uh, forest ecologist at the uh, Northeast U.S. Forest Service Northeast Experiment Station in uh, Grand Rapids, Minnesota. And just outside of Grand Rapids, John Ryla, who's a fifth-generation family logger whose family has depended upon white pine and who owns uh, a lot of land, a particular beautiful tract of 20-some thousand acres called the Wolf Lake Tract, in which he's trying to apply some of the um, the things that Brian is learning in his experimental forest at the Forest Service to the management and the restoration of white pine in his forest. But John has come to the realization that while his family has uh, known for beautiful white pine lumber, they need these other trees in the forest too, like the maple and the red oak in particular and basswood. And they actually manage for 23 different species. But in order to do that, um, he's got to maintain the mycorrhizae. In order to maintain the mycorrhizae, he has to make, maintain habitat for voles and for eagles and so forth. And so he's trying to apply this idea of ecological forestry on an industrial scale. And so the interesting thing mm -hmm. is um, – yeah, you said that the, we have to look at all things as being equal. And yes, that's true. That's one way of looking at ecological forestry. But even if you want to uh, uh, look at the forest and say, well, timber is still what pays for it all. So we got to get timber out right. in order to maintain a sustainable supply of timber for generations and to grow these big trees where you get the most valuable timber out of it. You need to sustain everything and all the other yes, species right. that are in that forest that are all part of the web that that forest is in order the the big trees are bringing in the energy from the sunlight and putting it into the soil by the leaf litter and so forth and providing habitat. And they're taking up the nutrients and circulating those throughout the forest but all the other species around that tree are part of the forest and are part of that flow, that cycle of things. Mm -hmm. um, so eventually, yeah, you're going to maybe cut down a lot of these trees, but um, only after the forest has regenerated. In fact, um, being out in the woods with John, he said there's a number of big white pines he'll probably never cut down, that they're so valuable as sources of seed for the surrounding area. He's just going to leave them. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, he'll cut other trees that are big, yeah. but somewhat smaller. But some of these big giants on this property, um, he said they're just their role is not to supply me with timber. Their role is to supply me with the next generation that I could cut. And, and so mm. ecological forestry yeah. is a, it's a concept that's developing. It's not final yet. But it's a different kind of forestry than the classical silviculture that uh, I learned in, in forestry school when I went to forestry school. Of, um, you know, we're looking at the forest and, yeah, we'll provide some wildlife habitat and this and that and everything else. But really what we do is we grow board feet and we get out board feet. And we're not giving up on that idea. But we're starting to recognize that we're not just simply providing wildlife habitat for hunters or bird watchers or so forth. All of that wildlife, all of these other species in ways that we're still learning um, are important for sustaining clean water, supply of timber, taking carbon out of the atmosphere, um, providing game, uh, providing enjoyment, providing spiritual nourishment. All of the all of this stuff. So that's where ecological forestry is going, and I think it's a very exciting time in, in profession. Yes. Oh no, it absolutely is, and it's something that that's being talked about more and more and more. And um, is there perhaps um, somewhere people can go to learn more about specifically? Because I think you detailed it a bunch in the book, and obviously people can buy the book. I think that's the number one place to go to learn more about mm. these concepts of ecological forestry and that kind of thing. But if people want to go really deep, um, is there is there a website or something you can go to check out the Wolf Lake track to learn more about the specifics of the decision making process? Yeah. Um- well, there, there's um, – if you look up um, – it's called Minnesota Timber um, Company. That's the Ryla company name, and there's a website in there. And John Ryla writes a blog in there talking about various decisions he makes in the woods. Um, there is also uh, the – at least in this area, Brian Pollock, P-A-L-I-K, has just written a book uh, with Jerry Franklin and – some other people called ecological silviculture. And that's become like the Bible of ecological forestry. Mm. And it gives a lot of case studies with Douglas fir in the Pacific Northwest and redwoods, uh, pines in Minnesota and, and so forth. That's if you really want to dig into it, that's the Bible to, to go to. But I would look up, uh, uh, John Ryla, Minnesota timber companies, um, his website, uh, Brian Pollock, look him up on the web, uh, P-A-L-I-K, and uh, his okay. book, uh, Ecological Silviculture. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's a, it's, a, it's an awesome – I love hearing people's ways of thinking about our relationship to the forest and how we're going to step into the next generation, the next – the next stage of forest management where we continue to make it, you know, it's, it's more complex and more values to be considered and more just yeah. challenging and, and, and intricate decisions to be made. And I think it just becomes more interesting and more inclusive of everybody. And it's just gets better. And I, I, I feel like everybody wins, right? It's just, it's so, it's, it's fascinating and I love it. And so I, I loved hearing about this specific example is not one I had heard, um, so yeah, I'm excited. I'm going to check out those, 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 uh, resources that you mentioned at some point here and, and dig a little deeper. Cause it's, I think that's, 
that's the way we're headed. It's kind of inevitable. It's just, it's just how long does it take to get there? Right. Do you think that that, that way of managing is scalable to, you know, the national scale, like, um, you know, like a place like the boreal forest, right. Where you have, you still have a lot of, you know, primary forests that are being managed. And do you think that's scalable to that level? I think it is. Um, I think it's going to take a long time. It's certainly easier if you start out with a forest like uh, John Ryla's Wolf Lake Track that's already in pretty good condition. Um, I think right. in the right now it's going to be a few uh, forest industry industrial foresters like John who has access to land like that uh, in which he could get out a, enough very high quality lumber to pay for this kind of management. Um, and it's going to be on experimental forests that learn how to do that. Uh, a good bit of the area in the Pacific Northwest is Douglas fir plantation, just solid Douglas fir planted at four by four spacing. It's going to take some time to get that into a condition that is more along the lines of ecological silviculture. And here in the Lake States, uh, there's a lot of aspen because we're cutting on clear cutting on 50 year rotations to regenerate aspen for paper mills. And, you know, mm -hmm. we need paper. We have to do that, but it doesn't take a whole lot of intellect, let's say to go out and just mark land and say, okay, come back in 50 years and clear cut it. And it'll come back to aspen trying to convert that aspen or bring it along to, uh, an older, longer rotation kind of forest uh, can be really difficult when the forest is just aspen and then the understory is just hazel brush. That's going to take a lot of work to go in and replant yeah. and a, a lot of time. It's going to take generations of people. So I think it's going to yeah. happen more on uh, federal land, uh, which are still largely in, in – uh, long-lived species uh, with uh, people like John Ryla. Also, the Menominee Indian uh, Reservation in Wisconsin is a whole county that is in forests like this. And mm -hmm. they're managing their forest on ecological subculture principles and making um, money doing it. It's a large source of revenue. Yeah. So if you have forests that are in good That's shape awesome. already, uh, it's going to be easier to bring them up to full uh, healthy condition. And to the extent that the forest has been degraded more and more, it's just going to take a lot more time and resources to bring it up to that level. Right. No, and that totally makes sense. But it is heartening to hear that you think that it's, we're going in that direction and it's, things are moving and, 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 and values are changing and, and people are, but yeah, like you said, the plantation thing is a little different. Um, like yeah. there was one line you had in the book where you said, a plantation is not a forest and it never will be, right? Like it's not right. – it's a different thing. It's We have, it's we have a, a different purpose for it. It doesn't mean that it's right. bad. It's just not – it's just not a forest. Don't pretend it is. <laughs> right. Actually, actually yeah. for things like um, uh, dimension lumber, like two-by-fours and stuff, mm -hmm. you know, um, managing loblolly pine plantations in North Carolina on a 40-year rotation, if you – what you want is two-by-fours, yep. well, you know – 
that's the way to do it. But it's it's not going to provide what we think of as a healthy forest, which which yeah. also means that the foresters down there have to invest a lot of money into maintaining that plantation. You got to fertilize it. You got to herbicide it. If that's what you want, yeah. you're going to have to invest a lot of money. The trade-off is it's an agricultural climate. Yeah. Once you have a healthy uh, forest uh, like John Ryla has, you don't need to invest that much money in maintaining it and rejuvenating it because you get more valuable timber out of it. You don't get as much, but it's it's more valuable. So there are trade-offs mm-hmm. here, and uh, you know yeah. I I don't think. Plantations are going to go away completely. I had, I think they had the role. No. The problem is that it, for a long time, it became the only way to do it. Absolutely, they have their place, and they're going to be necessary yeah. in, in certain aspects. But it's yeah, it's not the only way. And there's if we want multiple values, then we have to do things a little differently in different places. So, yeah, and I, I liked, I really liked um, something you said in the book. Um, I'm, I'm going to attribute it to you. You can you can correct me if I'm wrong, but. Um, you said, uh, the, the decisions we make are not just ecological, but societal as well. These decisions will require us to respect all our stories and recognize that they all have value and are vital to success. Yeah. W- what did you mean by that specifically? I feel like we've talked about that a lot, but if you wanted to summarize, what, what point were you trying to get across with that statement? It's that our cultures look at forests in many different ways and, these different ways of looking at it from Native American ways to Paul Bunyan, the heroic logging ways, and so forth. It's not that one way um, uh, replaced an earlier way of looking at it. It's that they became accreted on top of one another. And as long as there was plenty of forest around, it didn't ah. matter. You weren't in conflict. But now uh, when there's there's not as much as there once was – all of these different ways of looking at a forest that various societies and cultures have um, made a part of themselves are coming into conflict. And so when we make decisions about what to do, how to manage a forest and what future condition we want it to be in, um, it's certainly the science comes first. Nature will do what nature does, period, regardless of what yeah. we want it to be. So you got to get the science right. But you also have to, we also have to understand that different cultures in each of us, even within ourselves, have conflicts about what we want. I mean, I'm the son of a carpenter who made things out of beautiful white pine that probably came from the last remnants of these big trees. I loved it. I loved the smell of white pine. I love working with white pine in my own shop and so forth. But I also love to be in a forest of big trees. So you, we're cutting down the big trees in order to get the beautiful lumber we need, but we want the big trees. So how do we do this? It's We are trying to yep. merge various societal values that appear to be in contradiction with each other with the science and biology of how the – not just how the trees grow, but how the forest ecosystem works as a system. And we, yes. we don't know enough about how forest ecosystems work as a system to be able to predict. If I do this, this is what's going to happen and this is how long it's going to take. And we don't know enough about how trees figure into 
cultures and societal values. So this is where this is where we're heading. And I think it's a for some people that can be very frustrating. For me, it's very exciting. It's a very exciting way of doing things. And this is what um I'm going to leave my grandchildren. And my grandchildren are gonna be the yeah. the generation that actually figures it out. And uh but we're yeah. we're like Absolutely. on the um uh, on the 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 first step towards looking down the line and uh and I, I hope my grandchildren continue this. Absolutely, no, I love that. I feel, I, I feel it as well. I, I, I'm excited by the concepts of, of, of growing and getting more intricate and 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 understanding these relationships better and just just getting better at this concept of of you know being a society, right. at, you know, working with and in balance with nature. Like it's just it's it's the ultimate. Yeah. I'm excited. It's I, I'm with you. I'm totally with you. Um, so yeah, thanks, John. That that was that was a. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. The book was incredible. Like I said, I really I want everyone to go out and buy the book. It was it was uh, really really just well put together and concise, and they could do follow along. It's a nice a nice story, and it just I learned a great deal, um, a lot more than I had anticipated learning, and it was just well, thank it, was, you. it was great. So thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome, and thanks for, thanks for taking the time. Thank you for inviting me. This has been this has been fun. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. I know I was blown off my feet by this book. It, it really just kind of really made me realize that I was kind of embarrassed I didn't know about white pine before this. <laughs> I mean, I'm in the boreal, but still. Still. <laughs> so, what do you do? All right. Thanks a lot. If you enjoyed this, please uh, rate and review it on social media. Share it on social media. Get it out there. Tell people about it. I really appreciate it. It really makes a big difference. And yeah, we'll catch you all in a month. Thanks again. Take it easy.